Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Crossroads wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across Sheffield from the 31st of May to the 2nd of June. So other podcasters that you'll be able to see include Katie Price, Catherine Ryan, Ramesh Ranganathan and the original Adam Buxton. But there's also a whole host of free fringe events, family shows, surprise acts and after parties that Jane and I haven't yet been invited to. I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information. A warning, this podcast contains details about the torture and death of a toddler, which some listeners may find disturbing. I'm looking at some grainy 30-year-old CCTV. Four still images of a reasonably normal-looking Friday afternoon in a shopping centre. In the middle of the picture, walking away from the camera, are three figures that stand out. One is clearly a very young child. The other two aren't adults, but it's not clear how old they might be. One of them is in the lead, and the other is following close behind, holding the child's hand. These are the images Merseyside Police released on Saturday the 13th of February, 1993. A glimpse, we now know, into a horrific crime. Little James Bulger disappeared while shopping with his mother in the Bootle Strand shopping precinct. Security cameras photographed his apparent abduction by two youths outside this butcher's shop in a Bootle arcade. Police hoped it was just teenagers messing around and two-year-old James would be returned safely. The search and the media frenzy around it gripped the nation. The police have warned they cannot guarantee anyone's safety until the crime is solved. The crime is so shocking, not only because James was so young, but because every parent can identify with his mother, who lost sight of him for just a few moments. If you've got me, baby, just bring them back. Two days later, we found out where those first blurry CCTV images led. Lying protected under a police tent, the body of a boy, James suffered truly horrific injuries before his body was dumped on a railway and hit by a train. Blood was splattered up on the wall. So you can see the severity of actually the way in which the poor little mite was uh, attacked. So it's unlikely that the body has been lying there for long but its discovery means the launch of a murder inquiry. As part of that inquiry, the two people pictured in the CCTV footage were questioned by police. And shockingly, they weren't much older than James. You talk to I'm not the blame. No, you're not getting all the blame. I'm just asking your son. Yeah, well, we usually always get the blame. Wait a minute, Bobby, listen. <laughs> Just, just calm yourself down for a minute, 
those two children were ultimately convicted of killing James Bulger. At 10 years old, they were the youngest convicted murderers in modern British history. They were released in 2001 after serving just eight years. And as far as we know, one of them, Robert Thompson, is living a normal life. But the other, John Venables, has been convicted twice more. The guy's been in and out of jail, is currently in jail for possessing serious pornographic images of children, so he is a dangerous paedophile. After a two-day private hearing, which Venables failed to turn up to, the parole board decided he was still a danger to society and refused his application to be released. That means he'll stay in prison for at least another two years. But in the 30 years since the original murder, have we learned why John and Robert killed James Bulger? Was it fair to treat the boys as adults during their trial? And how did the case change the way we treat children who kill? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Luke Jones. Today, what happened to the boy who killed James Bulger? My name is David James Smith. I've written for the Sunday Times magazine over many years and I've written some books and one of them was The Sleep of Reason, the James Bolger case. A book you could write because you were there through all of that trial. Indeed I was. Um, I was living in London. I decamped to Merseyside shortly after the, uh, the murder occurred and I lived there and uh, sat through the trial. And so you went up there because you were you were sent for your work. Uh, yeah, so I was commissioned to write the book, and uh, it seemed the most expedient thing to do was to just go and be there. Incredible that a book you were commissioned to do a book even before the trial had started. Was it just because there was so much interest in the case? Yes, there was a huge amount of publicity. It was a very, very controversial case. I'd actually gone to a publisher with a, another idea, and. Uh, between me submitting that idea and him agreeing to meet me, the Bolger case occurred. And he said, look, that's very interesting, but mm. have you considered writing a book about the Bolger case? It's around 30 years ago now, incredibly. Extraordinary. Um, for people who might not be actually familiar with the, with the timeline of what happened, can you take us through the case, I guess, starting with young James Bolger out shopping with his mum? Sure. So it's uh, uh, Friday, the 12th of February, 1993. It's the mid-afternoon and uh, James Bolger is out shopping with his mother and a friend of hers in Bootle Strand Shopping Centre. And also there in the shopping centre, along with a lot of other shoppers, are two little boys, John Venables and Robert Thompson. They're both 10 years old. They'd met up that morning, they were supposed to go to school, but they decided to sag, as they called it, play truant. And instead, they'd made their way down to the Strand Shopping Centre. And they'd been there for quite a few hours by the time that James Bolger appeared. Uh, they were quite mischievous. They were, you know, doing a bit of shoplifting, sort of being annoying to shoppers and shopkeepers. And it appears that they made a couple of attempts to abduct another child. And then uh, Denise, the mother of uh, James Bolger, Denise, wanted to buy some meat for supper. She'd gone to the butcher's AR Tim's and uh, it was kind of an open shop frontage. She'd gone in. James, you know, she'd let go of his hand and he wandered briefly from her grip. He was just about to be three. 
And when she looked around, he'd disappeared. And people might remember that famous bit of CCTV about what happened next. Those two older boys walking away with this two-year-old. Yeah, so, so it's kind of a frozen moment in history, isn't it? These stills may look a little bit fuzzy still, but they're a huge improvement on the originals. The Ministry of Defence has employed the same enhancement techniques that were used during the Gulf War to identify targets. Of course, at the time, no one knew who it was, and the images yes. were kind of blurry and indistinct, and it was very difficult to work out how old the boys were, or indeed who they were. Where did they take him? Well, initially, they took him out of the shopping centre to the canal that ran alongside, and uh, it appears that uh, they discussed pushing him in the canal. I think they lifted him up, dropped him on his head, and... Uh, at various moments, he's crying, saying he wants his mum. Gosh. So they went from, from the shopping centre to that canal towpath. Yes. And then what happened when they moved, moved to that third location? So essentially, they set off to walk from the canal towpath up to Walton. But they didn't go, and I always think this is significant to what happened, that they didn't go directly to the railway line where the killing took place. They meandered around. They walked up to on the top of a reservoir. They had some encounters with adults, a woman walking her dog. And when you say encounters, just what, them saying hello or someone saying what on earth are you boys people, doing? I think people you know, were, were wondering who are these two boys with this little boy. Sometimes James was crying. People said, oh, what's wrong with him? They had various stories. They said, uh, we've just found him. We're taking him to the police station. They said, oh, he's our little brother. We're taking him home. Mm. So these were obviously deflecting lies to, yeah. to disguise uh, what they were actually doing. And they went down from the reservoir. They walked into a street with a few shops. They went into a pet shop called Animate and... They were looking at these uh, fish tanks, tapping the screens. They were annoying the shopkeeper in there. They seemed to be be showing James the the fish. He seemed to be interested in those. I mean, just a very uh, much more kind of un, uh, surreal kind of event than, yeah. than people e- imagine. You know, they imagine that uh, they took him and killed him, but it wasn't really quite like that. And then, you know, I've always wondered whether they didn't really know what to do with him. You know, it wasn't a yeah. purposeful act of abduction uh, in terms of you know we took they took him straight and killed him there was this mm. you know meandering and yeah but they did kill him in the end how yeah, so how and where did that happen they have all these uh, on the estates so the housing estates of liverpool they have all these kind of back alleys, alleys which they call entries so they appear out of an entry opposite uh, walton police station and uh I always think that that's probably the last moment that James could have lived. They apparently discussed potentially pushing him across the road into the police station where he could be found, but instead they turned left up the railway bank onto this little used railway line with a, the remnants of an old station. There's nothing mm. really there. I mean, significantly, it's the back of the police station, uh, which is just across the road. So they get up there and uh, then the attack starts. I think they'd stolen some little tins of paint and they threw that at him. Uh, there were some bricks there. They threw bricks at him and... I think there was probably some kicking and then uh, ultimately they picked up this heavy railway plate called a fish plate and and dropped that onto him. So, I mean, you know, an absolutely terrible, terrible event. When was he then found? Because did they just scarper after that? Yes, I mean, they, they appear to have made some attempt to cover the body with bricks or part of the body. James was left on the railway line and they disappeared 
went back to their lives. You know, one minute they were doing that and the next minute they were chatting with the person in the video store. James lay there for the best part of two days, uh, was spotted by somebody passing on a train, thought it was some rags or a doll or something. And then on the Sunday afternoon, a group of young boys, not much older than John and Robert, uh, found the body on the railway line. And as you come out walking, you could just see it, just see it there as you looked on the floor, just right there, by the little path. Because I said, it's a baby. phone call came into the incident room at Marsh Lane Police Station to, to tell us that the body of a child had just been found. It was just after three o'clock on the Sunday afternoon. And as soon as Denise saw us, she must have read it in our faces. And she just went hysterical and screamed out. And she was absolutely unconsolable. And was it clear at that point what actually had killed him, or was it because you know in the midst of all I those? I think attacks... probably the, uh, the the fatal blow would have been the the fish plate landing on him. In fact, the body had been bisected by a train passing through. So, gosh, obviously this is the immediate event in microcosm. The larger picture is that the entire world was wondering what had happened to this child and who these two abductors were. How long did it take for them to actually then? find John and, and Robert? It took a few days. There were a number of false starts because they only had the image, really, to go on. And it wasn't clear how big or little the boys were. You know, people were phoning in saying, oh, it could have been my son or my neighbour's son or whatever. They made a couple of arrests. There were kind of false starts. I think it was this huge, angry crowd gathered outside a house where an arrest was being made. Completely nothing to do with the case at all. And then there was another CCTV image beside a wall. And when the police went to the wall, they realised looking at the image and the size of the boys, how small they were. So that kind of recalibrated their thinking. Then they realised they were looking for much younger boys. Then I think a friend of uh, John Venable's mother thought that might be him. And uh, so then the police started making more inquiries. It turned out that John Venables had come home with paint on his jacket, matched the paint from the scene. So then the police go and arrest the two boys. And they're charged quite mm. quickly after that. Yeah, so there was a long series of interviews with them. This interview has been tape recorded. I'm Detective Sergeant Roberts. Now, what's your full name? Robert Thompson. You're under caution and you do not have to say anything unless you wish to do so, but anything you say may be given in evidence. Now, you understand that, don't you, John? Yeah. All right. Of course, you know, the police don't very often interview 10-year-olds for such terrible crimes. So uh, they tried to take them very slowly through what happened. Initially, of course, they were denying it. And he said that you took him by the hand and led him out of the strand shops. He never. He's a liar. Calm down. All right, it's all right. Come on, bro. It's all right. Come on. All right. I never got the boy. I never killed someone. But by degrees, they made admissions. Oh, yes, we did see him. Yeah, we was. So you were in Bootle New Strand? Was you in Bootle Strand? We never got a kid, Mum. We never. We never got a kid. Mrs Venables, would you... I must ask you not to get angry with it. And then they started blaming each other, what's known as a kind of cutthroat defence. You know, it wasn't me, it was him. Mm. John threw all the bricks or, or Robert did that. 
จบช่วงนี้วอลคนรางไว้ตอนมานั่งชกกระชั้น Lose idea was it to walk towards it? Mine. Was it? Then it was Robert's idea to kill him. So eventually, uh, the police decided that both boys must be charged. So then there was uh, a long interval preparing for the uh, the trial. Is it finished now? Because it can't speak anymore. And can you remember that news being public that, that it's um, that not only have they got and charged two people, but that they're ten years old? Yes, I mean I remember that extremely well. Because that must have been incredibly shocking for everyone. It was shocking, uh, and 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 the way the country dealt with it then, and I think probably to some extent still does, is what I, I like to think of as a kind of othering of the of, of the boys that they were no longer you know human, they were kind of demons, they were evil. Mm. The tone of the coverage of the national debate about it, and there was a national debate, was very uh, condemnatory of the two boys. To me, they're just like devil kids. Ordinary kids wouldn't do that. It's just the evil. They're just evil. I think that they premeditated. They knew what they were going to do. They'd intended, one way or another, to kill a child. Bring back, um, you know, hanging or whatever to scare people off because it's happening all the time. It seemed to me then that there was a kind of failure of understanding. You know, that we didn't really want to know what it was all about. We just wanted to to say they're not part of us. They're evil, and that's how we will explain. Which I guess it. is natural because it's so hard to comprehend. Yeah. They were boys. They were ten, but they were charged as adults. How did that come about? Well. In some countries, being ten puts you below the age of criminal responsibility. Yeah. But in in England and Wales at that time, between the ages of ten and fourteen, there was what they called a rebuttable presumption that you didn't know right from wrong. So the presumption was you didn't know right from wrong. So therefore, you you weren't criminally responsible, but you could introduce evidence to rebut that presumption, and and that is eventually what happened at the trials. How do they actually try and? Rebut that. I mean, what kind of evidence is? Well, they called. They basically called the uh, the teachers who had taught them at their primary school. Remember, they you know they hadn't even finished primary school, and uh, basically you know asked the teachers, "Did you teach John and Robert right from wrong?" And they said, "Oh yes." You know, the, the trial lasted the best part of a month, and it took up twenty minutes of Gosh. the uh, the evidence. Just so, to deal with that question. Yeah, and I've often thought that they could have invested more time in that. One of the things, for example, that Robert Thompson said in his police interviews was. What happened to James? Had they taken him to hospital to get him alive again? And one could interpret that as him being, you know, cheeky and and trying to pretend that he didn't understand, or one could take it at face value that he really didn't know what he'd mm. done. You were there every day of the of the trial. Can you remember seeing them for the first time? Yes, I'd actually seen them some months earlier when I first uh, arrived in Liverpool. They were still going through a series of magistrates' courts hearings, mm. so I remember very vividly walking into uh, to court and seeing them sitting in these what seemed like huge chairs with their feet dangling because they couldn't reach the floor, and they were dressed in shell suits and. They just looked like thousands of other boys on, on Merseyside, and it was very difficult to. Uh, you know, relate them to the enormity of what they'd done. Was there much of a circus outside? There was. There are some famous images of very angry crowds gathering. Um, 
like a kind of baying mob effectively and you get these vans coming through and the crowd surges forward and there's banging on the van and shouts of hang them and and I would later talk to uh, Robert Thompson's mother who'd been in the van and you know she would describe how terrifying that was. What were they like during the trial? Because they didn't give evidence either of them, did they? But I imagine you could you could look at them as others were going through the horrific things that they did. Um, could you read anything from them? So that first of all, they moved the trial from Merseyside to Preston because they felt that there would be too much prejudice uh, yeah. uh, against them on Merseyside for a jury to be unbiased. Mm. And then they'd realised that uh, there was a brass rail in front of the dock where the accused sits in a trial. These very old, uh, you know, austere courts in uh, Preston. And so they decided to have to put a platform at the bottom of the dock so that uh, John and Robert could see over. But that also had the, the, the reverse effect of it was almost like they were on stage, you know, so they were risen up in the dock and everyone in the court could see them. It was kind of they were in the middle of the court. It was like theatre in the round. And uh, so everyone, you know, I'm sure including me, you just watched them all the time trying to understand, you know, what was in your head? What were you thinking? What kind of person are you? But they were just like two little children. Uh, you know, they were wearing, you know, some semblance of a school uniform, like white shirts, dark trousers. And one of them would kind of unroll the cuffs of his shirt that was too big and kind of roll them and roll them up again. They suck their thumbs both boys, although it was plainly obvious that they committed the crime, they both denied it. Mm. So there was a full trial. And then it was very difficult for them to concentrate. So the judge made a concession to their ages. He made it like primary school hours. But even so, you could see that it was hard for them to follow what was going on. Mm. They didn't give evidence, but Am I right in saying that some of their police interviews were, were played or just read to the No, to the they court? were played. And uh, I mean, I think the, those were some of the hardest moments in the, uh, in the trial. So John Venables, during his police interviews, his parents were there and the police felt that his parents were stopping him admitting what, what he'd done. So they, they stopped the interviews. They took the parents aside and said, look, we, we think that if you, if you tell him you love him and no matter what, what you'll carry on loving him always, maybe that will help him to tell the truth. Yeah. So that's what they did. A short while ago, you had a conversation with your mum and you then requested that myself and Dave Tanner come into the room. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So he then blurts out, you know, yes, I did kill him. And he kind of curls up in his mother's lap, crying and sobbing. And what was it you told us? That killed James. All that was played in court. And it was so you, you've got the boy sitting there listening to his own distress. And uh, I subsequently found out that uh, John Venables was suffering from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and he, he used to have all these kind of visions. He, uh, he imagined that uh, James Bolger was up in heaven uh, watching the trial. He used to take the clothes off he'd worn in court at the end of, of court every day because he said he could smell the baby smell on his clothes and uh, this very disturbing image. He imagined a baby James growing inside him waiting to be reborn. I mean, that... That's kind of stuff. a weird thing. It's almost yeah. uh, like a form of remorse in a way, like he wished he could put things right, you know, by bringing yeah. James back.
coming up. The boys are found guilty. But what has happened to them since that verdict? That's in a moment. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. On Saturdays, we have a bonus episode for Time subscribers. Inside the Newsroom, it's called. It's our new behind-the-scenes series on Apple Podcasts, and it is just for Time subscribers on the Stories of Our Times feed. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash bonus podcasts to find out more. They were obviously found guilty in the end, but was there any concession in terms of the sentencing, bearing in mind that there were 10? So uh, Robert and John uh, were given a, the child version of life sentences, recommended that the, the tariff date, the earliest time which they could be considered for release, would be 10 years. The Lord Chief Justice wanted it to be eight years. And the then Home Secretary, Michael Howard, he wanted it to be 15. He wanted something very yeah. severe. But the Lord Chief Justice's tariff of eight years eventually prevailed. And so from 1993 to 2001, Robert and John were detained in secure units. When you say secure units, not prisons? No. So they're sometimes colloquially referred to as kiddie prisons. They're like prison light. So, yes, they're locked up, but there's a focus on uh, learning and sort of positive activities. John's at a place called Red Bank on Merseyside, and Robert was at a place called Barton Moss outside Manchester. And even after they were sentenced, though, there were restrictions as to what you could do as a reporter. Yes. So the judge had a big decision to make at the end of the trial. Were they going to be named? So all through the trial, they hadn't been identified. They were boy A, boy B. Hmm. And then the the media made applications for the names to be disclosed. The boys' lawyers felt that that 
could potentially be harmful. So the judge had to weigh that up and he decided that they should be named. One of the reasons he gave was that he thought, you know, media attention, that, that, you know, some study of them might explain what had happened. I mean, I think probably in the long run it did harm to them because in the end the courts had to decide that the risk of them being found and attacked was so great that they might be killed that they had to be given the kind of equivalent of witness protection so they couldn't be identified, they would be given new identities and uh, the media are prevented from reporting who they are or even going to look for them. So to this day, yeah. even if you had a contact who said, oh, I might be able to find them for you, you'd be like, yeah, exactly. You know, post on Twitter, oh, you know, does anyone know where John Benables is? You'll be in trouble. So they're in these sort of secure units after the sentencing with their new identities. Was there much care for them? Because they had done horrific things, but I guess that must have been quite traumatising as well, oddly, for them. Absolutely, yes. So there was a degree of uh, therapeutic input. I think I read somewhere that uh, John Venables, when he came out, he'd never been on a bus on his own, he'd never been to the cinema. And obviously, the more restrictions that you place on people, the harder it is for them to come out and and find Mm. a normal life. So there was a kind of balance to be struck between keeping them in custody and also enabling them to, Mm. uh, to have the best opportunity to be rehabilitated. Arguably, the rehabilitation didn't work as well with with John Venables. He and Robert left custody after eight years, but he was was soon back. It's one of the most extraordinary things. So at the time of the trial, people come to court and they say, oh, you know, that Robert Thompson is a little thug, that John Venables is a little sweet, innocent one. There was always the impression that Robert had led John. And I always took a different view. And then as as they came up to uh, parole, we learned that uh, John was considered by psychiatrists to be uh, extremely well rehabilitated. Of course, that turned out to be very far from the truth. So he'd been out for nine years by 2010. Yeah. And uh, there'd been some indications he was getting into difficulties. He was he was caught with a little bit of cocaine. He'd gone back to Merseyside a couple of times, which he wasn't supposed to do under the terms of his license. And then in 2010, he calls his probation officer and says, I've revealed my identity. So that places him under threat. Yeah. So uh, the police are called. They rush round to his home to take him into protective custody. And there he is with like a hammer and a screwdriver trying to jemmy the hard drive out of his computer. So the police are, you know, well, this is a bit suspicious. So they take the hard drive, they examine it, and on it are all these indecent images of children. Mm. It was around that time that I wrote a big article for the Sunday Times magazine, and I discovered that while he'd been at the secure unit, he'd had a sexual relationship with a a carer. While he'd been at the secure unit as a sort of 10 to 18-year-old or 10 to 19-year-old. he was was an adolescent, and I've wondered what, impact that might have had on him because it's kind of an abusive thing obviously if that had happened at a school between a teacher and a pupil the the teacher could have gone to jail what did the the secure unit or that care what did they say to you in response to those Uh, well they wouldn't really comment on it but i had good sources and i was confident it happened i gathered that the woman had been transferred to somewhere else and uh, uh so you know so john venables or whatever he's called at this point in 2010 is sentenced for having these child sexual abuse images, and then it happens again in yeah. 2018. So he, he's, uh, he, I think he got two years in prison for the 2010 incident. Mm. I think he ended up serving three. He was released by the parole board in 2013. That, that suggests that they must have believed that his, his risk could be managed. Mm. 2017, 
more images are found. This time, a lot more images, a lot, a lot more horrific images, and uh, also what was described as a paedophile manual, whatever that is. A uh, you know a, a book that shows you how you can perhaps download images. Yeah. Uh, so, 2017, he's sentenced to three years, four months, I think. And throughout all of this, Robert Thompson has just been living his life somewhere. You know, it's, it's hard to accept for some people, perhaps, but that's our principles of society. We accept that people will be punished, and then that punishment comes to an end. And if you can show that you're a, a you know, law-abiding citizen, then good luck to you, as it were. So, we don't know anything about Robert. What we do know is that he's never been in trouble so mm. you know and that's really important if this were to happen again it would be treated differently uh, in the court system at least is that because of what happened with this case i mean was all this reviewed quite quickly afterwards yes it went to europe and the european courts agreed with the submission that the trial was you know unfair in the way it unfolded today the claim that the proceedings were incomprehensible and intimidating was upheld as a result the European Court found that the two boys could not effectively participate and that their trial was, therefore, unfair. I remember within the decade after it happened, attending a trial at the Old Bailey of some little primary school boys accused of rape. And the judge and the barristers didn't wear their wigs and gowns and the boys sat not in the dock, but in, in the well of the court with their lawyers. And uh, there were these signs all around the court, you know, jury in big letters, judge, you know, so accommodations had been made to their age. Was that it, essentially? Yeah. So, I mean, overwhelmingly, what I took from that was we're still going to try 10-year-olds in an yeah. adult court. So they were still on trial at the Old Bailey, which I would say is a kind of damaging process for a child and is just going to make their rehabilitation even more difficult. How do you think this compares to other similar cases and and how the system and the public approaches these? I mean, is it still, to a large extent, ever thus? There's a comparison often made to the case in Scandinavia where two small children killed another child and there was no trial and the children were accepted back into the community. So they remained in their community and, I mean, it's really hard to get your head around because yeah. if John and Venables had gone back to their community, undoubtedly they would have been lynched. Just uh, the other day, two 12-year-olds in Wolverhampton were charged with murder. Hmm. I've no doubt they will be put on trial if it goes to trial in a Crown Court with these modifications, special measures they're called for adaptations of the court for their age. But still there will be, I'm sure, a trial and the same thing will play itself out again. You were clearly fascinated by this case and been thinking about it a lot even still, many, many years later, the, um, the Bulger case. Are you any clearer as to their motivations or is that just entirely lost to time, do you think? Yeah, I think it's really hard to understand. Uh, I think one of the best explanations I saw, I had some access to some papers after their parole hearings in 2001 and... Uh, There'd been some concerns about Robert Thompson, whether or not he was a psychopath. So they had somebody uh, evaluate him and, uh, you know, he came up with the, the conclusion he wasn't a psychopath. Mm. But in the course of that, there was some discussion about what had happened. And the psychiatrist described them as these urban feral children, you know, which is what they were like. They were kind of unbounded. They didn't really have proper parental supervision. I mean, imagine yourself playing truant from primary school. I mean, I, for me, that would have been unthinkable. Yet they were, they were doing that. They were committing these, you know, petty crimes. 
and somehow or other they got the idea in their head that it would, would be uh, I think that Robert claimed that John said let's get a kid lost and that was their plan perhaps that was a be all and end all of the plan and then after they had succeeded in abducting a child perhaps not really expecting that to happen then they didn't really know what to do with him and that seemed to be what uh, Robert Thompson had said to this psychiatrist that in the end uh, James Bolger died because they didn't know what else to do you know which is a terrible thing mm-hmm. but you know, if one thinks of it in childlike terms, which they were children, then that provides some kind of explanation. And I much prefer an explanation like that to the idea that they're evil, because I, I just can't really accept that they were evil. You ponder this a lot still? Yeah, I mean, I, I barely a day goes past probably where somebody doesn't phone me up to take part in a podcast. Or I, you know, yeah. it comes up in some way. It, it, it always comes up. I've written about lots of different things since... But, uh, yeah, it's kind of haunting, definitely. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Luke Jones, and my guest, author and Sunday Times journalist David James Smith. You can find all of David's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was Olivia Case, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Hannah Varrell. If you have a suggestion for something that you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or you've just got a comment or query about what you've just heard, you can email us anytime. Stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk is how you'll reach us. Goodbye.